0: Welcome to today's New Frontiers in 3D, Visionaries Speak Roundtable. My name is Karen Dowell and I'm Editorial Director at New Frontiers. For those of you who are not familiar with us, our mission is to educate and foster discussions among thought leaders and innovators who are working to transform drug discovery in using 3D in vitro technologies. In previous years, we've done this by organizing intensive one-day symposia. But like many meeting organizers, we've gone digital this year due to the pandemic. And we decided to parse our program into a series of KOL roundtables and offer a curated news digest to keep you informed until we hold our next symposia. Today, we're kicking off our roundtable series with a compelling discussion on animal-free safety testing. Our panelists will explore three key topics. First, drug safety with animal models today, how to improve predictivity and translation to patients, and the biological and technical requirements for successful implementation of a chip solutions for industry. You can ask questions at any time during this discussion using the chat window on the right side of your screen. Our panelists will answer them as time permits during the Q and A. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce today's panelists. First, we ha- representing the pharmaceutical industry perspective, we have Dr. Stefan Plats. Stefan is a senior R&D leader and passionate scientist at AstraZeneca, globally leading clinical pharmacology, pharmacometrics, as well as toxicology and pathology. Creating groundbreaking medicines and being led by innovative science is in the center of his work. Stefan is a board-certified toxicologist, in addition to earlier qualifying as a certified veterinarian, veterinary pathologist at the University of Munich. He has over 25 years of experience working across global pharmac- pharmaceutical companies, including Roche and AstraZeneca. Stefan believes that collaborations are key to expand our knowledge and expertise. Next, we have representing the academic perspective, Professor Thomas Hartung. Thomas is professor of evidence-based toxicology and director of the Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing at John Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health and Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Constance. He's a passionate advocate for replacing animal testing with more ethical and predictive in-vitro models and is investigating new applications for big data and artificial intelligence and toxicity testing. As an academic, Thomas aims to in- impact practice, public and po- and policy. And finally, representing biotechnology is Professor Armin Wolf from NSFERO, an accomplished pharma. Pharma R&D executive and board-certified toxicologist with more than 30 years cumulative experience at Novartis and Janssen, Armin is a leading expert in mechanistic and investigative to- safety and discovery, dedicated to the development of physiologically relevant models for industry applications. Armin joined in Sphero as CSO in 2019. He maintains a dual appointment as a professor of toxicology at the universe- Technical University of Clausthal in Germany. Armin believes strongly that for industrial applications in vitro models must provide maximum physiological relevance at the lowest level of necessary complexity. And now I wanna turn this over to Armin, who's gonna to lead to this, our panelists in the discussion on drug safety with animal models today. Armin.
1: Thank you, Karen, uh, for opening the, the scene. Uh, good morning and good afternoon. I would like to, to start with the first question uh, to, to Stefan, uh, before new truck candidates can enter first in human studies, uh, the truck safety has to be confirmed by uh, testing of animals. so um, do animals predict human truck safety correctly that's my question to you, Stefan.
2: Thank you, Armin. Um, I think I want to just dissect that question a little bit more. Because, uh, first of all, the current approach relies really on in vitro and in vivo models. So, it's a package of in vitro data, HERC, for example, in combination with in vivo models, that enables us to test drugs first time in humans. Now, if we look at the track record and the harm um, we have done really well, in predicting the first dose and developing drugs that have been assessed as being safe for being tested in humans. I think we need to really acknowledge that, that the first-in-human dose selection has not given us any evidence that that it would trigger significant risk to humans. This is a major achievement. Nevertheless, I think we also need to be very clear that this approach does imply certain risks. And those include, for example, the risk about drug-induced liver injury or immunosuppression. Anything about immunogenicity, immunosuppression, drug-induced liver injury or carcinogenicity is a challenge and needs to be addressed and offers major opportunities where drug safety testing needs to go beyond and above where we are today.
1: Okay, so then let me uh, comment on what… But Stefan say, I think that, that's an interesting perspective, uh, uh, Thomas. Uh, so animals, they have their justification. And, and I think they were set up as a, a human desire or society desire to, to guarantee safety also of new track candidates uh, to, to man um the, the animal is a representative based on on similarities to to the human anatomy and the physiology condition so it's a surrogate somehow for for the human it's a complete system it was started in the 1960s uh, when there were difficulties with uh, with the, the teledomate and then that triggered the the uh, let me say the um the systematic testing, and uh, with this safety factor concept, I think we we uh, could could manage to get some some uh, safety on board for for new truck candidates. So uh, the system is also uh, regulatory accepted, and, and and that makes it also very attractive for for companies to to follow that um, the direction. But nevertheless, uh, there's an Inter- interesting uh, publication ca- coming up uh, over the uh, uh, from the EMA, which uh, said that about ninety percent of the IND uh, candidates, which were supposed to to go into the clinical uh, phases, into the clinical testing, that that their phase faz- failed. So, um, and and that uh, makes makes it um, a bit. Let me say. Uh, uh, less uh, appearing as, as le- less attractive that that those uh, that you, these candidates are dropping out. So, what uh, what what would you comment here, uh, Stefan? So,
2: um, yeah, and uh, thanks for mentioning. That's a paper from published from Ema on a range of molecules, and uh, it was published I think 2018 if I recall correctly. So, this looks at an entire portfolio of drug candidates and you probably need to look at it and dissect it. So, what are the main reasons for attrition? If I look and I'm taking our own experience published in the 5R paper from just about, uh, I think, end of 2019, we call out the biggest failures are mostly related to not translating the efficacy we seen kind of in V20 the models. And I'm calling out the efficacy, to then have biomarkers, and then later not seeing the efficacy in the phase two. So the attrition is mainly related to phase two, where we, where our biomarkers don't translate into human therapeutic benefit. Okay. I think that's one main area. Other areas, when you look into that, often are very driven by strategic perspectives. So one needs to be careful. I think it's right. There is overall a, a success rate for molecules making it all the way from start and discovery to development is significantly low. It's a major challenge for us to reduce this high attrition, but I don't want to make the conclusion that this is mainly related to in vivo experiments. There are many other factors, um, and it brings back to what I have put in there. We need to have a much more better and in-depth understanding about the biology.
1: Agree, Thomas? No, he, he. Can you hear us? Apparently not. Um, yes. What what this paper uh, uh, shows to to me is that we we have a we have an, an issue with translatability. So, and okay. uh, and the, and the, and I think whether it's efficacy or whether it's safety, there may be some other reasons. It shows that the animals they. They are fit for their purpose, as you said. For for the first dosages, you can take some essential information, but I think it will not guarantee that uh, compounds are dropping out. And and you mentioned uh, also the DILI uh, as a as a case where where we have uh, let me say uh, even if a compound passes the the safety test in the animals, we we and uh, and also passes the um, the the clinical phases. We we observed this idiosyncratic type of reactions then uh, post uh, post launch and uh, and I think this is uh, telling me that that we do not catch up these effects good enough by by the standard testing of uh, using animals. And yeah. uh,
2: and, so- and I think there is um, and there is some great work um, whether it's for example call out the CEPa where we look at ion channels to make much better predictions of an arrhythmogenic or a risk. This is a great initiative. It does demonstrate value. It will help us in more rapidly selecting the right candidates and therefore minimizing animals. I would also call out the FDA database. I think it's LTTB, where the FDA has put a high number of molecules with all the related information into a database and made it publicly available. Um, This offers a fantastic opportunity, and that's also why I said there is cross-collaboration is kind of key, and within safety, also we are in a very privileged situation, as we are in a pre-competitive phase, where I believe um, the safety of patients is dominating above any kind of commercial interest, uh, which is a fantastic opportunity to to meet. So safety, in a way, is prone to help accelerate and innovate how we uh, use alternative models to test and make predictions. Um, I think that's that's fantastic. And I would also add to that, just to make it a bit more complex, um, what we see these days is the expansion of modalities, uh, where very often we no longer have animal models that reflect the biology very specific diseases uh, where we would need models that allow us to give a safety and confidence to progress into humans without a suitable animal model. So, what are the opportunities? And maybe we come to that later when we talk about organoids, MPS systems. Um, There are more and more companies now that offer um, IPS cells. I was reading about an Israel-based company. They take cells out of the omentum from deceased patients them into ips cells and then transfer them back into uh, specific cells depending on whether it's a heart muscular cell or hepatocyte and, and i think that's a very much more interesting approach how can we turn it into organoids and then make predictions um that are really translating more directly to the deceased individual and the deceased patient
1: so you you mentioned a very important uh, point uh, and, and and let me see that from from my uh, perspective. So what we are doing uh, since since many years uh, is testing trucks uh, in healthy animals. So we have here rodent non-rodent concept, the safety factor con uh, 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 safety factor uh, principle, where we're making a, a safety factor based on on the observation in healthy animals, mm-hmm. uh, and then we go directly then to the phase one, which is a uh, let me say it's, it's it's the healthy volunteer study, and then we go to the patients. So and uh, and and patients um, um, are not healthy individuals. So we we are in a situation we are comparing, uh, let me say, uh, apples and potatoes uh, in a way. And uh, and so when we when we when we're thinking about what could trigger here let me say an, an adverse effect then in the patient population it, it is certainly the uh, coming from, from the contribution of the underlying diseases and, and the contribution of, of, of the individual patients so if we really uh, want to uh, to do here an a, a, a new uh innovation in in the field i think we we need to to consider also that uh, the it's not a, an a healthy individual human individual is not our 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 customer it is it is the patient we want to help the patients and and the patient bears some intrinsic risks just to to be more uh, sensitized to be more uh, uh, responding uh, um, earlier, responding uh, by 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 severe uh, effects as 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 a health, as healthy individual would do. So that that challenges for me the whole concept as as we're doing um, drug safety testing. I think um, to to look also on on on, on mechanistic yeah. studies just to supplement our impression from 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 from. from uh, uh, for for particular type of of toxicities, I think that that's a very pragmatic way to do it, but but it it doesn't say that that the animal uh, system is is complete for for the safety uh, in investigations. So, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so just to add to uh, to the complexity here, um, the current models and I'm talking about 2D models, quite often lack a good PK-PD relationship. Um, Even with some of the MPS models, and there was a really nice paper describing some of that work by Adrian Roth just about a year or two years ago of some of these MPS models taking kind of oncology uh, tumor, connecting it to uh, an MPS model and starting to correlate still one of the challenges, kind of what dose correlates with a certain effect in these in vitro models. And I think that's one of the challenges we have to work on. Uh, It's more difficult because what the in vivo models are relevant and give us still today, and I agree with you, it's not ideal, and I would be the first one to love to replace them, but um, the dose response curve in a multi-organ system. A, B, the uh, recovery. Do we have recovery and the long-term effect? I'm really excited to see the long-term dosing we can now do, for example, on bone marrow systems. Uh, we're working with two organizations, and we have started to use our bone marrow MPS systems, including additional information of databases, and patient information, as well as supplementing it with further in vitro data and historical in vivo data, to allow us to make predictions how we combine two drugs for cancer therapy in individuals by finding very rapidly the dose, the right dose regimen, and the frequency of dosing. And I think that really triggers some of the advantages of the MPS bone marrow system where we can, over a longer period of time now, start to see and measure CD39 positive cells and really mature in different endpoints where we can look at the neutrophils, the, neutrop- uh, the erythropoiesis, uh, neutrophils, and, and that makes it more exciting. And that's one of my prime examples where I think we're really bringing benefit to a patient. We are not putting patients on risk. We very rapidly, come to a dose that shows the maximum efficacy and safety without a further testing that in any in vivo model. I think that's the way to go, and that's really getting me excited. I think we have Thomas now online, if I'm correct. Yeah.
3: Yes, uh, I did not he- hear a single word. After the training <laughs> session, it was perfect. Uh, for 20 minutes, my microphone was out. It took time and I got my laptop up.
1: So time. then then let's give give you the opportunity to to talk about animal animal testing in general. So uh, Stefan, he gave already some uh, solutions for uh, for to address the the gaps in uh, uh, by with the animal testing. So, but it would be good to hear also what what your perspective is in terms of of uh, general weaknesses. So, how far can we go with the animals, and where do you see some some opportunities where we need to to significantly improve it?
3: Yeah, I mean, from, I mean I've i made a living out talking about the shortcomings of animals, so uh, I'm happy to uh, extract the essence, which is, uh, from my point of view, we are overestimating animal experiments and what they are delivering. And and the reason, reason for this is that uh, we lack self-critical mechanisms in science. Um, nobody will write a scientific paper and say, uh, yeah, but my model has these shortcomings. Nobody will apply for funding and say, yeah, uh, I only get 80% of the toxic substances or something like this, yeah. Um, this is not rewarded. Uh, it takes a lot to turn people against their own models. So, it's typically with experience talking um, about these things. Um, and if you give it a little bit of a closer look, and in toxicology we can do so, because uh, we have so much replicate testing for many reasons. Uh, the same substance have been tested many times. Um, because also so many important decisions are behind this. Uh, The disaster, it's a disaster, yeah? Um, We did a big analysis in 2018, where for the six most common toxicological tests, the classical six pack Yeah, So we're talking 57% of all animals in toxicology. We found 350 to 750 chemicals, which were tested more than uh, twice. And then you can start looking into what is the reproducibility? It was on average 81 uh, percent and this is highly inflated by non-toxic substances which stay non-toxic. They don't suddenly become toxic. It was only 69 percent reproducible for toxic substances. So tell me which regulator or which toxicologist who has to sign off uh, on a safety assessment can sleep well if you might miss 20 or 30 percent of the toxic substances. Um, I mean, these are the low, uh, the the simple tests. These are the uh, the tests which are uh, topical and acute, um, perhaps more important for worker safety than for for safety of drugs, let's say. But if you look into the more complex ones, um, mice and rats predict each other by 60%. 60%. Yeah. Can can you believe that this is giving you the safety to really move forward with any substance?
2: Yeah, so this was my um, yeah that, that's a great start, and I think I love that comment, because it's the right thing to be provocative. Um, my first question to you would be, if you talk about these numbers of experiments that could have been avoided, and I would be the first one to sign on if these are unnecessary experiments, are we talking about drugs for patients, or you are covering? Cosmetics, agrochemicals, because we should not repeat experiments. And I'm completely with you that there are plenty of opportunities, and that's exactly what I said before. We should do more in the pre-competitive space and collaboration. There were some great initiatives coming out of Horizon 2020, et cetera. But let's just clarify that for a minute. You, when you say that we we are having a lack of predictivity, what do you mean?
3: Okay. I mean, uh, first, the, the data I refer to came from the industrial chemical space. Um, uh, the, um, in the farmer area, you have a very different situation because you move into humans yeah? and you get you get human information. Um, and there is also a, a process of selecting things out which have some, seem to have liabilities when, when putting your money on the best candidates. Um, still, early analysis from Olsen and others, uh, um, showed that the health effects uh, which or let's say the uh, the side effects which were found in patients were predicted only retrospectively 43 percent by rats and mice uh, some sixty percent in uh, when you included also dogs and and and, and monkeys um, which was not very promising but uh, we have also to see that most of the health effects when going first in humans are relatively mild and uh, these are things which are can be handled and and you learn it you have a completely different filter in pharma than you have in in other areas where we don't have this control yeah um
1: i think that, that that was an interesting discussion can we go to the now in terms of the splitting the time time correctly for for this one hour i think we have to go to the topic number number 2 uh, which is about uh, improving productivity of truck safety for patients so and uh, and I think it's important that we address this patient so, and uh, uh, aspect here that we bring in the disease that we bring in the disease component here in the predictive mode, and um, and 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 that starts by the question, uh, what are the possible reasons for for the, the the low translation from from healthy animals to patients? So, and I'm just coming coming back that we. We're mentioning that that the disease per, per se is changing the outcome of, of a, a toxic response, uh, in, uh, and it makes a difference whether this is um, in a healthy subject, a healthy animal, or it's an it's in the diseased animal. So, and uh, what type of Safety testing strategies can we use here in order to to improve the outcome? So Stefan mentioned already uh, a couple of 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 things which which he he is using, and I think that that uh, that all makes sense. Uh, uh, just to to get the confidence on 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 the on the safe track, and uh, and we doing that um, um, maybe not in a systematic way. We're just doing that. Uh, is uh, based on, on on the upcoming project so what do we have to do systematically to address this underlying disease this patient uh, uh, centric um, component which is coming from the disease in in our uh, in vitro testing strategy and and for the development of uh, of better better uh, test systems so okay. maybe no maybe can we give the words to, to Thomas here, okay. he was he so was, he was quiet for, for, for a while. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, from my point of view, the wrong answer is to create disease models in animals and then test the toxicity of the substance. Um, because then you have um, um, done two things which are wrong, the species differences, which, which I just referred to for healthy animals versus healthy humans, and then you put on top an artificial disease which, in very rare cases, really reflects the disease in humans. Um, I think the way uh, f- forward is to gain as much as possible information from um, the early clinical trials, because in these early clinical trials, um, we can do today with biomarkers, with the with omics, which you can run on on the uh, on, on blood samples of these uh, of these volunteers and and early patients. You can. Really understand what is the network which was the, is deranged by the disease and how uh, does treatment affect this, um, and and this I think is, is at the moment so type of systems toxicology approach. Um, I think this is one of the ways going forward, and the other one is uh, to the model disease human relevant in microphysiological systems. Um, we see how they are mushrooming. Um, the big thing at the moment is to go from microphysiological systems to micropathophysiological systems, so really reflecting disease um, in a human-relevant way, and then you have no limitations really to address. Is there something different in the effect, in the toxicity of uh, of a substance um, in a diseased uh, organoid? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So, what what you're saying is that that you would consider also. Then uh, testing trucks then in comparison to to undiseased conditions under diseased conditions, and uh, and, and that these um, testing uh, will depend on, on on the target which which you are trying to to address then by your therapy then in uh, under the in vivo uh, patient situation coming coming from, from the patient itself. Uh, but also addressing then some some multiple factors which could be then enhancing the the effect so that you're creating disease models human relevant disease models which you then applying for for your uh, safety uh, assessment in comparison to healthy conditions so for in for instance
3: yeah exactly I mean uh, take COVID-19 as a good example yeah Uh, it is something completely different if there is an infection in your body which is uh, producing a cytokine storm and heavy immune reactions, and you're treated with some type of chemical entity uh, compared to, um, uh, to an undiseased situation. Um, we have to, to see, they can, they can go in either direction, yeah? But I think for, uh, it is possible to study this and, and mm-hmm. it's difficult enough to run a, a, a to infect an animal with uh, with COVID-19 and the type of animals, the rhesus macaques and so, is not what you really want to use for broad testing of side mm-hmm. effects. Yeah, but but the microphysiological system can quite easily be used, mm-hmm. when you see whether the mm-hmm. infected tissue is suddenly reacting completely different.
1: Okay, so maybe maybe, maybe Stefan can also comment on uh, on that. On, on disease-specific risk assessment, patient-specific mm. risk assessment in an early phase is just considering these uh, risk factors, considering this uh, disease components. Maybe you have… Yeah.
2: Okay. A couple comments. Um, first of all, um, we're heading towards curing of disease and not symptomatic treatment. That's a major difference. That means we need to understand the biology of the disease in detail. My second comment was we need to be careful, kind of, about talking about diseases. So when I look in the eligibility criteria and inclusion criteria of patients, you could say there are diseases that are monogenic, Mm, I'm taking the example for spinal muscle atrophy, where it's a monogenic uh, disease that's very well understood. It's getting much more complicated if you think about Nash, non-alcoholic static hepatosis, COPT asthma, where there is not one standardized disease model. So where well, you need to go into a much more diverse phenotypic disease pattern. So that is my first challenge. If we just take it easy, and say, I, I no. agree.
1: Nash, Nash is a very. Uh, you both are frozen. No, no, no. you you taught no. up again. <laughs> no, no. So Nash yeah. is a very good good example. So which is is not one one monogenic type of uh, disease it is also a a, a development of a disease which starts from 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 the steatotic conditions where you have then the the inflammatory processes then leading then to the fibrotic uh, changes which you then will uh, see in in the patients and and uh, which you then could could address then by 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 the, by the treatment truck truck treatment for instance so which means we, we will have a, a continuum of uh, of a disease which is nash is let me say the the stage before you have the hepatocellular carcinogenic uh, cas- response, yeah, and uh, and uh, which means we we need then also to to have models. We need to see models which then may have the whole uh, sequence of events, which also have then the, the progression of the disease. Is that what 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 you're saying, or did I misunderstood?
2: No, what what my comment was, we uh, if we think about we would like to, and it's probably heading towards can we generate organoids? And for us, one of the objectives this year is how can we work with our cardiovascular research unit to develop organoids that are from patients, and we can then build organoids they reflect and mimic, and I want to say mimic, disease pattern close to NASH. Now, you need to think about what I just said, that there is a diverse range of patterns that results into that phenotyping NASH. Um, So you probably need to think about what is your N number because you want to also generate a statistically meaningful result. We really need to talk about the statistics here as well. If I, for example, look in cell lines for prediction carcinogenicity, or cure, you can see you take 20 different oncology cell lines for uh, um, breast cancer. And they all respond slightly differently, so there is a range and there is a diversity in these cell culture systems, per se. And I think that needs to be understood. We have to do more in clearly characterizing these disease models and know then how, and then, I like what Thomas said, then how are we going to translate the biomarkers from them and build maybe with some transcriptomic profiling the link into the patient. No, this
3: goes in, in many uh, directions. The first thing is, uh, I'm a big fan of front-loading toxicology. Yeah? Very simple. Uh, I think it is uh, disastrous, also from the economical side, yeah, to develop something and then go to, into 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 testing. And so we have to take advantage of everything we can do preclinically already, from target evaluation, uh, but also, uh, why don't we address toxicity endpoints in the efficacy models we are doing? Um, that, that's the disease model, and you can also look into what is smelling like a side effect. Yeah, what is smelling like something which is which is unwanted, but this is an analysis which is very often not taking place. And then the other way around, uh, all of the bi- uh, the changes suggest biomarkers which in the clinic to follow up. Is it relevant in humans? Is it really taking place? Um, is something derailed in a similar way as in the preclinical models?
1: Mm-hmm just just as a as a comment to that so from my pharma time i i know that in in this early efficacy uh, efficacy efficacy studies uh with with a, with an animal model that that also safety uh, endpoints are included but not in a systematic way. So what always is important is is the liver. What what uh, Stefan also pointed out, really is is one one of the let's me say reasons for for the attrition of of many compounds. And in the clinic, depending on on the underlying chemistry uh, of a company, it can be more or less. But uh, I think this type of endpoints and biomarkers they can be included together with the efficacy biomarkers. So that's that's doable in in many cases. Um, but but it's not uh, systematically uh, applied. I, I I agree. Yeah. So that
3: that, that could that could. Yeah, that so toxicologist needs to be part of the development team. Yeah.
2: yeah. Can I correct and, you? Uh, the toxicologists need and, to be part uh, of the discovery team because that's yes, where we exactly. start. And the, um,
3: and the the second point is both of you are representing from your background uh, some of the leading compa- companies who so really uh, are light years ahead of many of the small ones trying to develop things, the investigator-driven approaches at universities where a lot is wasted by not considering toxicology uh, because they don't have the background of doing so. Yeah.
2: Oops, <laughs> sorry, okay. lost. Oh,
3: moderate. No, so then, then I let's... think
2: that is the when when I look at safety testing. Um, I think we we have uh, the development, we have the discovery. Now, obviously. Um, regulators have a very difficult task and we should not underestimate it. A regulator is not per se a conservative person. A regulator does have a responsibility for approving a drug for being first time tested in humans or being developed further on and being then launched. So that's a huge responsibility. Um, and there is some caution and some conservativeism is maybe understandable. Uh, nevertheless, there's some good papers. There was one paper just published in regulatory talks um, in pharmacology uh, in 20, uh, 2020 from the FDA where they really opened up the discussion. Um, so it isn't like the regulators aren't moving. For us, and here it is, how can we bring in a faster way medicines to patients? It's really critical that we are picking drug candidates that predict the toxicity or minimize the risk of toxicity as we develop it. We don't want to just make adjustments to a tox profile once the candidate is being selected. And I think that is the unique opportunity which feeds then hopefully at some stage into this regulative arena where discovery specialists, discovery safety specialists are fully embedded in the teams. Where we look at kinase profiling, we look at channels, at ion channels, we look at uh, secondary pharmacology, we look at QSARs, structural alerts, just to talk more about the small molecules. This has taken up a major kind of part of the safety, a modern safety organization in industry today. Um, and. I probably could talk about the number of examples, not just from AstraZeneca, probably from a lot of other companies, uh, like Almond had worked on, who have really made significant progress. I think there is an opportunity for us maybe to communicate more what we are doing in that space um, and how we are trying to change it. Uh, we had uh, Edward et all in 2018, where we combined first time, like a heart and a liver model. Um, and we showed that, that the... Uh, uh, there is kind of a metabolism that can trigger secondary then cardiac arrhythmias. So, cardiac toxicity, there is an interconnection, because that's the other challenge of us. We are not looking at one organ in isolation. We need to connect the organs. And that is maybe a challenge I would like to hand over to you, Thomas. Where do you see the opportunity here in connecting different organ types?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you speak a lot to my heart. Yeah? I mean, you know that uh... We have done a, a workshop on investigative toxicology, um, to, uh, published two years ago, with 16 pharma companies, which is describing exactly these processes and the needs to, to, to have toxicology work there. Um, the organ interactions, I think, is uh, obviously the next next big challenge. We are pretty good now in producing almost every organ as organoids, as organ-on-ship solutions, But the multi-organ chip is still in a very experimental phase, but uh, with tremendous breakthroughs. Um, This challenge by DARPA NIH, FDA, uh, to produce a 10-organ chip, which is 28 days viable, was a very big investment um, of some $70 million. And it has shown us a lot of this. And there's uh, also others in Europe, uh, tissues, and others who are producing uh, multi-organ models. Uh, I think there's also a big chance in. in modeling these, um, I think we we can do this also computationally. Uh, take the input uh, if we um, if we start building computational models of our organoids, um, I think we have the opportunity to start putting these together, these individual models, um, with some models of uh, of, uh, of of kinetics, for example, and blood flow, um, and then we can run. The virtual experiments, which we can then verify again uh, in in the in the uh, in in our experimental settings, and make our models better and better. Yeah. So we are at the moment in entering really into dynamic modeling um, computationally, and we hope then to to test these things in in vitro in order to optimize our models again. That's I think uh, also um, a future. Thing. So so. And, and if you allow me one last comment uh, to the things you said earlier. Uh, I think we should be aware the most important thing is the how FDA is handling these new methodologies. You said the regulators are not conservative, and that's exactly the point. At the moment, there's so much movement in embracing microphysiological systems, for example, which is absolutely key. And and it's key for a very simple reason. Here in the US, we are 4.25% of the world population, but we consume 48% of all drugs, and 64% of all drugs are the patent. So every pharmaceutical company is mainly looking to the US market, and the FDA is setting uh, setting the pace. So I really applaud their programs to microphysiological systems, because that's what is needed that you dare to use these also for registration purposes.
1: So we are already on on topic number three, so that you took over the time when I dropped out um and I think uh, you you addressed already some 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 key uh, uh, key key approaches so you mentioned the microphysiological system you mentioned uh, I think you should also have to mention that that we have here uh, the possibilities working with organoids with spheroids, having here and uh, let me say a new dimension of 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 creating microphysiological uh, systems um and you mentioned also that that we, uh, have, can use the, um, the computational uh, opportunities and, and we should use them more for the modeling and, and simulation of the ongoing data, but also for the development of, of prediction model. I think it, it's, a, it's an interesting approach. Uh, and, uh, and Thomas, you, you have also some, some experience in, in this uh, arena um, where, where you using, let me say, the data not coming from pharma uh, but, but from chemical tests that, that you can use here artificial intelligence and um, also the, the machine learning to create here some algorithms, which allows you here some, some better understanding of, 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 of a chemical structure in, in, in a whole organism. And my question is, how far would, would you go in, uh, in, in, in this uh, extrapolation of the, the value for, for the future?
3: I mean, uh, every leading pharma company will embrace some of these methodologies. AstraZeneca is certainly in AI as much as they are in, in vitro. But the, um, I think the challenge at the moment is what I like to call in vitrosy, which means in vivo, in vitro and, silico, and in silico combined, um, because we are siloing these things far too much. Um, they, in contrary, feed into each other. Um, This is from the omics analysis of the animal models, uh, which allows us to replicate uh, what is happening here in uh, in vitro and the um, computational methodologies uh, implementing this towards in in silico experiments and going back. All of this is a crosstalk. And uh, I think the the challenge is really to have these different specialists talk to each other, Um, because we have far too many barriers (laughs) inside of toxicology there are very few people really bridge um this type of methodologies and, and and together they are really strong yeah
1: uh-huh. uh, stefan
2: so um the um, yeah we started and kicked off this uh, ai world um we have the data have we made them accessible maybe What is the quality of the data? Um, That's one part. I would totally echo with you, and I agree with you. Um, And I can share that on an example. So we started with a range of five, six in vitro assays. We have used a database, in vitro assays like BSEP, um, HEPG2 cells, to make on in vitro basis a prediction. We're using a Bayesian model. Um, So, already here you can see data kind of flowing in from a range of different libraries. We have now some bespoke studies dependent on the mechanism on the disease, and we have recently started using transcriptomics. If you think about this flood of data out of internal and external databases, the sophisticated models, I totally agree the outcome of the prediction of a human risk needs the integration of data of high quality structured approaches proper annotation thoroughly executed in vitro experiments that's the basis if we miss on that and i think a number of people are taking it you know just going to buy anywhere some data and I see a lot of companies offering kind of we offering you kind of predicting predictive tools on some crappy databases um that's misleading and that is a bit of my concern that we all now jump on the bandwagon of mps and we all kind of cry hooray and that's it and we combine and there are workshops but it is more complicated we for example need to think what databases we started to use uh, a knowledge database um knowledge graphs not only for identifying targets but also now making predictions about connections between pathways. Only in combination with understanding of pathways, looking for very specific markers, these MPS systems really drive the maximum value. Uh,
3: I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think the The three things which are important is quality, quality and quality. (laughs) Um, And you need this in each and every step. You were referring now to the data quality, um, where you boost the predictivity of your algorithms if you have a good database. And too many people try to squeeze answers out of databases which don't have the answer. Uh, The problem is that AI will always deliver something. Uh, But uh, the microphysiological systems we are talking about uh, also have a tremendous problem. Uh, there's so many which uh, only one phd student in his last year uh, or last year uh, can actually execute properly Um, and and these things are in the literature and uh, nobody else can ever reproduce it nobody spends the effort in standardizing and validating and this is where um, several things come in one is uh, the the standardization effort which comes from companies like in um to Uh, to produce something which is worldwide available in the same quality. Um, The second thing is uh, that we are developing uh, good cell culture practices, um, so guidance how to do this, which is enormously complex if you have a system like an organ on chip or so, and uh, this is something which is at the moment just in its final phase for good cell culture practice 2.0. And the next thing is reporting, Uh, reporting standards. Um, That's what we tackle will be tackling next, because uh, many things are not reproducible because we don't talk properly about them. We don't publish enough uh, details, um, and all of this can be sol- solved with modern technologies. Uh, but we have simply to do it, yeah. And we have to uh, to work collaboratively on the quality of all of these aspects. I...
2: sorry, go go, yeah. go
1: ahead. Go go ahead.
2: Um, exists one caveat. We have looked into when do MPS systems, as it's a bit of buzzword, deliver value above and beyond, for example, an organoid or beyond a 2D cell culture or a CFU colony, from bone marrow on hepatocytes. Um, I don't want to create the impression that we are there with the MPS systems. MPS systems are still costly, and they're taking time, where you could easily argue if you see the costs for a proper done MPS system experiment and the time, somebody could easily say, well, let's kind of do a red study. Um, so, this is something we need to understand and we need to be clear where is the value. I don't need to run an MPS system is I easily can find out the same bone marrow toxicity in a CFU model. What I wish to say is how can we incorporate more, like, immune-competent cells into these MPS systems? Mm. That's, for me, where the big differentiation would then occur. And that would be like, yeah. where are we? How far have we come by integrating immune cells into our MPS systems? Yeah.
3: Um, again, uh, we, we are on this absolutely on the same page. Um, let's start with the immune immune system. Uh, my PhD some 30 years ago, I have to, <laughs> to admit, um, was bringing Kupfer cells into a hepatocyte culture. Yeah? So exactly what these models are, are doing. Uh, what we're doing at the moment with our brain organoids, which, uh, which we are producing uh, is bringing in microglia, uh, the resident immune cells, uh, because these are um, absolutely uh, key in, in, in moving forward. And in the end, um, It is not about the costs of these models. It's about the value which has to be shown. Uh, I would assume that you pay any price if you avoid uh, a market withdrawal with a certain model. Um, The development cost of one drug are now averaged at about 2.9 billion. Um, If this is, uh, whatever you pay for an organoid is nothing compared to, to this risk which does not mean that your budget gives it all, <laughs> but uh, I mean, for a comp- from a company perspective, but uh, for this reason, we really have to make a case for these models, not just substituting for the animals, but adding qualities, which is human relevance and uh, delivering these results faster. Um, because time to market is simply everything in, in the drug development
2: process. It is time to bring life saving medicines to patients. I think that, yes. yeah.
1: And uh, this is exactly so. What what you also have to, uh, where you can uh, add impact in the industrial process, so that that you are able to to influence the decision making that um, you're pushing or killing projects at at the time when it's appropriate, and therefore you have to provide the. They say the high-quality data and scientifically solid data just to do this uh, decisions uh, to execute this type of decision. So, um, and let uh, bring me an, another uh, aspect. So, um, these microphysiological systems they they pro- have proven to show some uh, um, some some value. Because of the interaction, whatever you're doing in a living organism, you can try to also to mimic that in vitro in the humanized way, and by bringing in the immune competence that will certainly add an additional quality to to this microphysiological system. So, I just want to challenge uh, the situation that we have a lot of microphysiological systems around, which all deliver in terms of the proof of concept. So they're trying to, to, to mimic the in vivo situation, and, but then after a thoroughly a characterization, I think decisions can be made on that. So what I think is the next step, and I fully agree what you guys were both saying, that we need now to, from this proof of concept study, we need to reach the next level. So were we producing data and it's, it's not only that we're producing data uh, to, to show the, the, the proof of concept, the physiological relevance for the characterization, we need to show that by validating those uh, models with reference compounds, agree fully what you said on the databases you need to generate, and then also applying these models. And that will certainly be the next let me say the quantum leap which will then um we have to 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 reach and that would also facilitate then the the usage of the models also and in the industrial setting and uh, and i think that's where we have to come to go and uh, uh, and i think that that should be all our objective to to reach this uh, objective so
3: statement yeah if i can add one thing to this uh, going a bit full cycle back to the first question yeah uh, it is it is not only about finding um, the toxic effects which are uh, which we would have missed um before we go into humans um, but it's also about the opportunities lost uh, with wrong false positives in all of these animal models um, i mean I, I once wrote an article about aspirin not passing most of our tests yeah um, but, uh, what we kill just with mutagenicity essays, um, which substances are not never making it to the, to the clinic while a lot of the very successful, um, substances we have in the clinic, uh, for, for a long time have liabilities there is just traumatic. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and, I think something human relevant
2: helps, uh, helps
3: everyone um, yeah?
2: and uh, that's, right. that's, uh, because. So, you do not only need, so we focus very much on uh, um, disease models, MPS models based on human tissue. We also need to understand the animal specific effect because, at least, you know, in the interim, we will have to continue with in vivo data um, in probably the rat and another non rodent species. So, I can give you one example where, for example, GI toxicity. Um, So, you would like to develop a drug, but how do you set the dose if at a very low dose you see RGI toxicity in red, maybe less in the second species? So how do you drive, you know, your dose setting for humans? Um, You can be easily misled by testing doses that are of no therapeutic benefit, way too low, exposing patients to medicines with no paid benefit just by a building on the rat. Uh, And I think that is the opportunity where you could, and we did that successfully, demonstrate that if we can compare a rat, a non-rodent species, and a human, that the human species did show in that mini-gut model much less of susceptibility towards the eye shock toxicity. What you have to do is, you have to get in a conversation with regulators. And I had experienced quite an openness to balance the risk, which is, of course, in that case a cancer indication, towards the benefit. And it was very successful by testing a higher dose that was ethically adding value to patients at an early stage rather than testing a suboptimal dose. And that was, for me, a great example where these MPS system in a gut model added value. But we had to do it across different species.
3: Yeah. and and you said you have to convince the regulators yeah. and this is one of the big challenges uh, for moving forward um it is often very difficult for the regulators in the industry to talk directly to each other um, the fda cannot cannot invite individual companies uh, very difficult to um to move forward also with the anxiety to possibly do something which delays registrations uh, and this is where academic groups like mine uh, hopefully come in as a just as a lubricant helping these uh, these discussions as we work both with the regulators and the industry and the technology providers uh, to accelerate change
1: okay i think uh, where are we karen i think with it's now for question to the audiences
0: Think that we should forego the audience Q&A today because of the, the lot, time that we lost to the technical difficulties early in the, in the roundtable. But we will send out, we'll, we'll put together a document to send everyone in the audience so that you have a chance to hear what panelists have to say about your questions. Is that okay? Okay. So with that, what I'd be- like to do is is let you continue on this and talk about your future outlook or where do you think we go from here and what, what where will we be in 2030?
1: Who wants to start? Thomas?
3: Um, I I believe that these um, technological developments, which are rather young, um, I mean, we really have stem cell biology, uh, human stem cell biology, available to broad variety of labs only since 2006, yeah? Um, AI only since 2012, really, in, in in a way that it is meaningful delivering, yeah? And others. I think that this, these technological developments and their integration and their validation and quality assurance and their proper reporting will by 2030, give them a much broader um, um, availability and reliability. And uh, I hope that this will allow us to really talk more openly about the shortcomings that we have in hand and uh, allow us to open the door uh, for fair comparisons and finding the right place for these technologies. Stefan?
2: So, um, I think about three years ago, and Thomas, you and I talked about the the quote from Francis Collins, the NIH director, uh, who had one way reaffirmed the importance of animal experiments, but clearly set up a high bar by saying, we should have was it 10 years from now or 20 years 10 years from now replaced in v1 models i think it is a really good challenge so i don't want to say where are we in 30 years it's more about how much do we want to challenge ourselves uh and i think as hard a bar as better we will do to meet up to the challenge so in a way i would agree it would be fantastic and it would be excellent if it would have better predictions, um, way, way better than what we had in the Olsen paper, striving for the 100 percent, which is unlikely to be ever achieved, but getting there and doing that with better models and replacing our animal models. I think it's a dream, but as it is, you need to believe in your dreams. And that's why I would really, really like to conclude and agree with Francis Collins about let's try to do it in ten years, even if it's a stretch, and we we set ourselves a bar.
1: Great, great vision, uh, Stefan and, and Thomas. Um, I I like to be ambitious, uh, and uh, and I like to, to 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 set the bar high. So that uh, is is always needed in order to to induce changes, um, and um, and to to be more concrete. I would say that that we continuously t- learning to reduce the animal uh, in truck safety testing because we we have this special application as, as stefan mentioned to to deal with uh, questions coming from animals we're trying to mitigate them we're trying to compensate them we're trying to also to create the respective models and i think um, that that will be a learning curve uh, for the for the next ten years or nine years, and uh, and uh, and I believe that we have to to make the the reach the milestone that we really translating the that we make the move from from the from the proof of concept studies in this microphysiological systems which i strongly believe that this is the future for 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 the human discovery field as also the human safety field that we will come uh, to that uh, milestone when we are able to increase the throughput when we are able to to Maintain the quality and uh, when we can really talk about data in in the same type of quality and that we using that also the latest technology as artificial and machine uh, type of machine learning and uh, in order to to extract these databases. So that's uh, that's my vision and and I, I believe I'm not so far away from from yours.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And if you allow me a shameless plug. Yeah. um the three of us are involved in an initiative to help forming a community on microphysiological systems by uh, organizing at the moment the first world summit in uh, June of 2022 um, and with two uh, virtual meetings in June and December uh, this year leading to this. Uh, and we want to create an international society on this occasion because it will be important that. Uh, all these very promising developments, talk to each other, learn with each other, and also then are ac- accepted with each other. We've, we will not be able to run validation studies and all of this for all of the different models which there are, yeah. but we need to build trust. And we can do so in a collaborative way.
1: Okay, Karen, do do you want to
0: you all so very much, not only for this excellent discussion, but also for your patience as we worked through the, the technical difficulties earlier in this in roundtable. It was really a fascinating discussion, and I hope that our audience leaves here very satisfied with the information that they've learned from just listening in on what you have to say. We do apologize that we didn't have enough time for a QA, and a but we will make sure that we send you a document and try to address as many of your questions as we can um after this this roundtable in the meantime i ask you to stay tuned for our upcoming visionary speak roundtables on topics such as diabetes type 1 research how do you balance experimental complexity with scalability and transformative advancements in screening technologies and with that i thank you all very much to, to the panelists thomas Stefan, and armin for sharing your knowledge with us today and to the audience for um, attending this event and um, listening in as they had a chance to talk about um, animal-free safety, drug safety testing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very
1: much. Thank you to all, all of you, the audiences and to Thomas and Stefan. Thank you in particular. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.